only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. To Romans chapter 3, we are going to be reading verses 9 through 20. Uh, if you would choose to use a pew Bible, that can be found on page 940. The Word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Folks, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there is the word of God. And what you have just heard is the very word of God. If you would like, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense of life on our own. We thank you that you have given us your word, which at times is hard to hear. These words are hard to hear, and yet we would ask that you would use them to open the eyes of our heart, that we might behold you in your beauty, that we might taste and see that you are good. Feed us, Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking to uh, someone in a counseling situation this week. Everybody counseled, don't tell them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and I've, I've said something that I want to repeat to you. Um, I said, you need the freedom to be helpless. You need the freedom to be helpless. And this passage uh, begins with a, a summary. In fact, Paul in chapter uh, 3, verse 9, basically tells you what he's been doing. He says, we've already charged that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That, that word charge is an accusation. So if you want to know what he's been doing from chapter 1, verse 18 to now, he's been presenting an accusation, a charge against Jew and Greek. And this statement that he makes here is 
It's comprehensive. It, it's saying that, and he uses the plural here. Up to now, he's been saying Jew and Greek as a categories, but here he uses the plural, Jews and Greeks. So he's saying every one of those people in every category, every single one of them, has one thing in common. They're under the power of sin. They're under sin, literally under sin. That's, I, I can say to everyone here, that apart from Christ and before Christ, sin had you or has you by the throat. There's no doubt about it. This is the condition of mankind under sin. And the indication of a power, a domination, there's much in Romans that talks about the enslavement to sin and how there's been a release of sin. There's a talk of the reign of sin in chapter 5, verse 21. And the necessary act of God Almighty to set us free from being under the thumb of sin. My daughter, right after they got married, one of their dogs had the, uh, I believe it was the, the golden retriever, by the throat. And all she heard, she was inside. She, they were living in a trailer at the time. Yeah, <laughs> my wife, my daughter's living in a trailer at the time. And uh, <clears throat> they're out on a farm and land and stuff. But anyway, so she hears this horrible sound. This, she didn't know what in the world it was. What kind of animal is making this sound? It, it's, her, it's her golden retriever. And her, the other dog has him by the throat. And she comes out and he didn't let go until she had cocked the shotgun and shot it off in his ear. Okay. <laughs> that's what she did to, to release the, the dog. But that's the picture here. It is really an ugly picture. Every single one of you, Paul says, every single human being, Jew or Greek, under the power of sin. And he ends this section to say, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's our title. Every mouth silent. That means so as we're standing before God, hoping to give some kind of defense, we have nothing to say in the end. We're accountable. The idea is that we've been brought to the bar. We have no more pleas. No more can be said for us. It's absolutely sure that we're guilty and we're just sitting there helplessly waiting for our sentence to be given. And it's going to be a sentence of death, eternal death. But I started by saying the freedom to be helpless, okay? Because if you would go with me just a few chapters over, when he's also talking about Jew and Greek, in fact, in many ways he takes up some of the discussion in chapters 2 and 3, in verse in, uh, again, in chapters 9 through 11. But at the end of that discussion in chapter 11, as he's talked about uh, his whole dealings historically, God's dealings with the, the uh, Jews and Gentiles, he says in verse 32 of chapter 11, God has consigned, that means hemmed up, as in a net or being hemmed up in the wilderness, hemmed up in a place where there's no escape. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 
So the reason that he is driving home to shut us up so that there is only one door for us to go through. There are no more options. There's no more possibility that we can somehow approach God with something that would commend ourselves to him. There's only one place to go. It's mercy. So we are to land at the same place where Jesus says in Luke 18 of the tax gatherer, all he could do is say, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Paul says he shut every single person, Jew and Greek, already accusing them that they're all under sin so that every mouth is stopped. Everyone's accountable to God, but not to end there, you see, so that for the whole purpose that they might receive mercy. Now, that is wonderful because you and I run like rats from our sin. It is so hard for us to face our sin, to face the utter ugliness of what we really are. The fears that we have of death and judgment, the fear of, of and, and the sense of guilt before God. We know how terrible our motives can be. We know how inconsistent we've been. We know things that we've said and thought or thought, desires that we have, we would be horrified for people to know. But God shuts us up to sin that he might show mercy. And we need, in view of the mercy of God, in view of the kindness, in view of the cross itself, that God has dealt that drastically with our sin, the freedom truly to say, as the hymn writer says, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. There's the cry. Or you can honestly, fully say, I'm foul. I'm foul. The stench arises from inside of me. Oh, Lord, rescue me. Rescue me. That's where Paul wants to take us. It's at, this, it's at once the worst place in the world to go. Just devastating, withering, you know. You know how terrible it is. Somebody even comes up to you and says, you know, there's something I need to talk to you about. You say, oh, no. You know, who wants to hear anything that you've done wrong? Anything. Even a little. I don't want to even hear any little thing I've done wrong. So don't tell me. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. But um, I'm not kidding about not wanting to hear it. But <laughs> I'm sure not kidding about that. But, but here's God saying, I'm going to unmask every single thing you are. And yet, there is our only hope for freedom and liberty. Our only hope is to admit the depths of what we are so that we can enter into the freedom of what God will give us. So, I I wanted to... It begins with us under sin. It ends this section talking about how every mouth must be stopped and accountable. But I wanted to put that in the context of his later statement, Romans 11.32. Why is he doing this? For the point of mercy. And we began, he launched into this section right after saying, talking about the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The gospel, the good news. The good news that there is righteousness. The good news that there is salvation to everyone who believes. 
And this gospel is about the power of God to rescue us. So it's in that context that he then launches into this discussion, this accusation, so that every door is just shut everywhere. And we are fully aware of the disease that we have, so we will come to the physician for healing. So, long introduction, but we've also covered a couple of passages. Now, we want to deal then with these, this uh, list of verses that he gives. Uh, it's the longest section that Paul ever quotes. Um, and certainly the only time he just hits it on sin the whole time. So this is a unique section that Paul has before us here, verses 10 through 18. And But I want to set it up some, uh, remind you again, and some of you who are visiting, what the context here is. So we'll, we'll first talk about how he's been uh, bringing accusation against Gentile and uh, especially the Jews, and how this is a continuation, a continuation of his indictment against the, the Jews. Even these verses, they're, prim- they're in the first place against the Jews, but because of that, they're going to include everybody. But it's important for us to know that. And the idea kind of is, you know, we use that phrase, hey, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And here's the idea. If the Jews, who are the people of God, have no safety from the wrath of God, nobody has any safety from the wrath of God. If the very people of God in the covenant are broken and sinners and must have mercy, then what about the people outside the covenant? They are desperate. Everybody's desperate. Everybody's under the power of sin. Nobody can plead any kind of circumstance to say, well, not me, because we're all under sin. Sin has us all by the throat. All right, so after the first chapter in which the the Gentile is largely, or the first place, the one that you think of when he says uh, all... uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, uh, verse 18. And the kind of sins that he at least begins about in terms of sensual impurity, we rightly think first of the Gentiles immersed in this and that surrounded uh, the Jews and the Christians at that time. But then toward the end, there are all kinds of sins mentioned from verses uh, 29 and following about covetousness and malice and envy and strife and deceit and gossip and slander, etc. And what we think is that this is, uh, as we've said before, kind of an old synagogue sermon, right? This is his gospel that he preached all around the Mediterranean basin in synagogue after synagogue or as it was in Philippians, he went by Riverside, but it was still the gathering of the Jews and and the uh, Greeks that were uh, attending synagogue worship. So this was his basic message everywhere. And here here was his method apparently. Using in that first chapter the very way that the Jews themselves spoke against the Gentile sins. And, and it, they were right, okay? But this was the Jewish way uh, of going after all the wickedness of the Gentiles. So Paul is agreeing. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, we, we all know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice these things. But then there's the curveball, right, as we've talked about it. All of that, while true and, and exactly right in terms of the Gentile sin, 
Paul didn't mean to leave the Jews out of that. He's just kind of setting them up to say, now, you who judge them, you practice the same thing. You as well fall under that condemnation. And so through chapter 2, he shows the particular contours of the Jewish version of sin. That they have been disobedient to God's law. That they have not... He he talks about how in verses 4 and 5, they have a hard, impenitent heart. They, They are not submissive to God. He talks about the fact that they're circumcised in the flesh, but they're not circumcised of heart. They don't have soft heart that submits to God. They don't have the the law written on their heart. They have the law in their hands, but they don't have it in their heart. And you get a little feel for this when Jesus will say things to the Jews like, you need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said it on several occasions in Matthew. You need to go and figure out what this means. And so what they had done was focus upon sacrifice upon circumcision, upon exactness of obedience, thinking that if they could just do these outward things, that they were safe. But the whole heart of obedience was not there. Because that's why Jesus got so angry, as we've talked about it in Mark 3, when they were watching him on the Sabbath to see if he would heal the man with the withered hand. Just watching Did they care about the man with the withered hand? No. Did they have mercy on him? Did they love him? Did they care about him? No. And that's why it said Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. That's what he's talking about here. It's the same thing. Loveless lives. And here what sin had done, instead of submitting to God's mercy, recognizing the need of God's mercy, Instead of glorifying and honoring God and hearing the word that talks about sin and being broken and given up and seeing I the very sign of circumcision that everybody saw put in children, what did it tell them? You need your heart to be circumcised in the same way. It was a proclamation. Your heart by itself, apart from God's work, is not in good shape. It must have a surgery. That was the message of the Old Testament. Circumcise your heart, not just your flesh. And that's the very end of what Paul says in chapter 2. You're not a Jew if you're just circumcised in the flesh. You're a Jew if you're circumcised of heart. And so, though there were so many outward things that were being done, all of it was a retreat from God, a rejection of God, that fully showed itself when God proclaimed His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Messiah of the Jews. And they, by and large, said, no. The mercy of that, no. The love of that, no. The, hum, the humility of it, the brokenness of it, the admitting of sin that God had to take upon himself sin for our behalf. No. And so their heart is fully revealed as not being a heart of worship, not being a heart given up to God. And so in that way, they're just as much lawbreakers as the Gentile. Sin just found it's a, a different way to show itself, you see. It's the same stench, the same stench.
We have been in, we smell this in Tennessee, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And the stench always the same. It doesn't matter if it's a Alabama skunk or a Mississippi skunk or a Louisiana skunk or a Texas skunk. It's a skunk. I don't think, wait, is that a Texas skunk or Arkansas skunk? It's just, a, it's just the smell. It's just a stench. And that's what Paul is saying in these first two chapters. The stench of sin, whether it shows itself among people who are within God's covenant or it shows itself in people who have no idea of the covenant or God, sin has everybody by the throat by nature. Everybody within and without that covenant must have a has, has to have a circumcision of heart. We must be rescued, all of us. And that's how he's concluding here. Are we Jews any better off? Or perhaps the translation... By the way, here's a first, okay? The ESV is not as literal as the NIV. That's a private joke for some of you. But uh, the word Jews is not found in there. And, and NIV leaves it out. And also, the word um, uh, power... Well, ESV is right there, not under the power of sin. Um, but, but Jews is not there. But that's an interpretation. It probably does mean the Jews. Are we any better off? Or one translation uh, could combine those two sentences and say, uh, do we have any defense? Do we have any refuge or shelter from judgment? Well, in either case, he says, no way. Because Jews as well as Greek, the emphasis is because we've charged that Jews and Greeks are under sin. Everybody is under sin. There's nowhere for anybody to hide. All are charged and nobody has an answer to it. So that's the context here. And when he launches into these passages, it's of course his way to confirm to us, to, to his readers, that indeed this is the case. And it's very interesting how he does this because in this particular series of, of passages, there's several of these, in fact, all of the psalm passages uh, are really written from the standpoint of the righteous against the wicked. Those, uh, the Jews writing about the wicked that are outside of the Jewish framework. Okay, and so some commentators have even said Paul's misquoting these verses. He's taking them out of context because it's it's they're talking about those outside uh, the context of the Jewish nation and their wickedness, like. Psalm 14 that he, uh, in verse 11, starts off and says, The fool has said there is no God. Well, which, which Jew would ever say that, right? How can that apply to them? But this is what's interesting, the way Paul does this. In general, as you look at the passage, he starts off in 10 through 12 with just the general statements about our sinfulness, especially that we don't seek for God. And the emphasis is is on none, no one, no one, no one, no one. And then in verse 18, there's one more like that. There's no one who fears God, okay? So that comes kind of as a caboose. No one, no one, no one, no one. Then he lays out the specifics in word and deed, okay? Verses 13 and 14, their words, verses 15 through 17, their deeds. There's no fear of God, no one. 
That's the feel of the passage. But he draws it from so many places. There are five different Psalms that are used. Ecclesiastes is used and Isaiah 59 is used. But he starts with this passage in Ecclesiastes 7.20, which is really directed broadly, universally. The, the preacher, Kohelet in the Hebrew, he is talking about mankind in general. No one is righteous. Now, the way the rab- rabbis would use passages like this, uh, they call it karaz, which is uh, putting pearls on a string together. So they would string a, a, pass- a, a group of verses based on the beginning verse. So this is what Paul is doing. He's got Ecclesiastes 7.20, the universal statement that all, there is none righteous. Then he takes these passages that the Jews would usually quote and talk about how those outside are wrong, those outside don't understand, those outside have become worthless. And he puts it in the context, you are the ones that are worthless. You are the ones that don't understand. There's no one even among you that understands or does good. So he's taking these very passages that they have used otherwise and saying, you're the man. You're the one, O Jew. Don't exclude yourself from these statements that are made to the Gentiles. And then it gets really personal because in verses 15 through 17, when uh, he pulls from Isaiah 59, that Isaiah passage is directed to Israel in particular. He's talking about Israel in Isaiah. When their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruined in misery. The way of peace they've not known. And so in effect, Paul is saying, what they were then, you are now, Israel. And he underscores that he's applying it to them by saying in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are not under the law, the word is in, who are in the frame of the law, in the sphere of the law. Look, Jew, the, word, the law particularly speaks to you, not just to them, but to you. You are to be included in this. Whatever the law says, it speaks to you. So that if you are accountable, everybody is accountable. That's the feel, you see. So if you're outside the covenant, if you're outside the Jews, and you hear the pronouncement made already, they are under judgment because of their sin. You think, oh, forget it then. I'm under judgment. Everyone's under judgment. And he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And he's probably, at this point, talking about this, because, well, he's talking about the letter approach of the law. Okay, this letter approach, as the Jews would say, it says in chapter two, verse twenty nine, not by the letter, but by the spirit. That's how obedience is to be carried out. It's by the spirit in the heart, a matter of the heart, a matter of brokenness and mercy and love, a matter of trusting in God's forgiveness alone, a matter in recognizing your own sinfulness to the ultimate degree so that you're crying out. Lord, have mercy on me. But you see, the the Jews, and this is what we all tend to do, we all so run from that reality of our sinfulness, we'll grab on to anything that can give us some sense of, I'm okay. I'm really not that bad. 
And I'm going to hold on to something. I'm going to gather around me something that will keep me from that devastating assessment. That I have to come to God and really say, foul I too, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And there are a lot of people that think, I just can't say that kind of thing about myself. Foul? Stinking with sin? Like my sin would be like unto that of a skunk, you know, if you could make the analogy that... Yeah, that's, that's what he is saying. And he's saying that all of this to drive home the nature of our sin, that it's a part of our words, it's a part of what we do, it's who we are because the emphasis is it's that, that no one understands. Nobody even wants God. No one seeks for Him. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, all of their activity does not have God as a regard. God is not their heartthrob. God is not their treasure. God is not their go. God is not their passion. God is not their love. That's the root of all of this. That God, by nature, we don't really want him. Have you ever had the freedom to admit that to God himself? Just to say, Lord God, I've really despised your ways. I've despised you. I've despised the things you want me to do. I don't have a heart to do the things you say to do. I don't have a heart to love people. I don't have a heart to love my wife like I should or my husband. And so the awful, I'll call it the awful freedom, the awful freedom to be utterly helpless and to say, I cannot change myself. I'm under sin. I'm under its power. I'm under its control. And sin is like this in that you may not, we don't even see it in ourselves and other people do. Case in point, many of the Jews, this happens also among religious people. Uh, a man can be so prideful about how diligent he is, how careful he is in so many areas. But if you talk to his wife, she's just like, mm-mm, mm-mm. He's harsh. He's mean. It comes out in his attitude toward the kids. Everything. There's no sweetness and servanthood and humility about him. He's horrible to live with. And everybody else thinks, and he thinks, I'm doing great. I'm doing this and this and this and this, and I'm accomplishing everything, and I never miss an appointment, and I'm doing all this stuff, and he's horrible to live with. It doesn't matter what, where you run, what you try to do, how you try to hide it, how you try to spice it up, what kind of accomplishments you're going to depend on in your life. Sin, by nature, has you, and it shows itself. And if it doesn't show itself to everybody around, it shows itself to God. And he sent his son to die so that people like you and me would have hope that we could be rescued from being under the power of sin. That we could be rescued from the condemnation and guilt and death that our sin brings. 
And we can be rescued from the habitual nature of our sin and the control it has over our life. That we could really be set free at the root of our being and become people who begin to grow in humility and love and joy in serving other people. That's a miracle. It's a miracle when it happens. And so, every mouth silent. Every mouth closed. Everyone shut up to one possibility. And dear friend, if God goes to this extent to speak to you about your own problem, about your own disease, and then to go to the extent of giving his own son to sacrifice for you so that you might be rescued from that sin, there could be nothing more terrible than to say no to him. There could be nothing more terrible than to thumb your nose at the sacrifice of his own son that is done in love. And all of this talk is just, let's be honest with what you are, who you are, so that I can get my hands on your life and reshape you. Don't refuse him. Don't refuse him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we... We sin in ways that we do not even know. We are so oblivious. We're so bent on ourselves. We so assume that we're the center of things. We so justify our lack of love to others, our lack of concern, our lack of sacrifice for others. We so justify the way we live. Lord, we are so loath to be honest about all of the fear and all of the turmoil, all of the failure, all of the desires and motives and things that go inside, on inside us. We pray that you will give us by your Spirit a vision of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, who has died for sinners, who has suffered in the place of sinners. So that in trusting Him, in being joined to Him, we can have a refuge and a shelter. We can have one who dies in our place, who bears our punishment. So that as Paul says later, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we can have a Savior who sets us free. As Christ said, that if you practice sin, you're slaves of sin. And the Son will set you free from sin. And if He sets you free, you will be free indeed. Oh Lord, we thank You that You take away our guilt and You take away the dominion of sin over our lives. And You lay hold of us and You make us Your own so that we belong to You and have fellowship with You and by Your grace start becoming like You in Your love. Oh Lord, may every person here Give himself, herself up to the Lord Jesus Christ for rescue, for salvation, for transformation, for forgiveness, to be accepted through him. Oh, bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. 
Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?